Today's scripture comes from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which, meant, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called a man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And, he, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him?
Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, and good job, Monica. Enduring through 41 verses of one of the longest chapters in the Gospel of John. Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my honor and privilege to lead us as we come to God's word. But before we do, would you join me now in prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much as what we are about to do. Father, as we consider the fact that we have brothers and sisters who would yearn, who would even die for the opportunity to sit at your word, who hunger for your word and yet are not able to because of the persecution, because of the hatred that they face. Father, help us to come to you now utterly grateful, utterly aware of what a joy and privilege it is. Even though we desperately need it, we never forget that it is such a joy, it is such a blessing for your people to gather and to sit under your word. For your word is life. Your word gives us hope. It gives us peace. Your word gives us power. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would strengthen us with power from above because, Lord, we are so weak. We are so tired living in a world that we do, living in a city that we do. Lord, we are filled with trials and temptations to where we battle those among us and we battle within. And so, Father, will you strengthen us now? Give us the resolve that we need and help us to hear your word today. Oh, God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I have seen the light. Have you heard that phrase before in church? I have seen the light. It's a very popular expression that you sometimes hear in the church, which usually refers to someone who just became a Christian. I have seen the light. It's right on up there in popularity with another famous expression that Christians sometimes throw out when they first become a believer, and that is, I've been born again. That's also another phrase to describe someone who just became a Christian. I have seen the light. And if you carefully consider what that expression is communicating in an assuming way, there you come to understand that part of what it means to be a Christian is to someone who becomes enlightened. A word that literally means someone who sees the light, right? Part of what it means to be a follower of God is to become enlightened, to see the light, to have blind eyes open, to have wisdom, to have knowledge, to have awareness. Again, Christian, part of what it means to be a follower of God is to be someone who sees the light, someone who is enlightened. Now, I know that isn't the kind of portrayal that Christians have in our society today, right? In our society, Christians are not seen as enlightened people. We are far ever conceived as people who are wise or people who are aware. Far from it, okay? And yet when you read passages like the one that we just read, 
Here Jesus tells us that one of the things that he came to do, one of the primary objectives that he had when he came to this earth to claim his people is to make sure that his people were enlightened, that they see the light, that they become people of wisdom. And this may come as a shock to many of us who grew up going to church because for many of us, we were taught that Jesus had other priorities. He came to heal the sick. He came to feed the poor. He came to preach the gospel. Yes, of course he did. But, oh, you would do well to know this, Christian, that Jesus came to also make sure that his people see the light, that they would be enlightened, that they would become wise. We're continuing our annual sermon series that we do at the beginning of every year entitled Grow Up. And the purpose of this series is to look at the six core values that drive us as a ministry. And today we look at the fourth core value that makes us who we are, that enables us to live out the mission that God has called us to do. And that core value is wisdom. Someone who is enlightened, someone who sees the light. And so to do that, two things I'd like to share with you today in light of today's passage. First, people who cannot see the light. Okay, I'm going to first talk about people who cannot see the light. Then I'm going to end it with people who can see the light. People who can't see the light and people who can. Okay, let's jump right in. First, people who cannot see the light. So our passage records a very interesting but very complicated interaction with multiple parties involved. And it all starts with a single question that itself was sparked by observing a person who could never observe anything at all in his entire life. Starting in verse 1, can we have our passage please? It reads this, And as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Here's what's going on. Jesus and his disciples are journeying along in their itinerant ministry, and they, lo and behold, a man who was blind from birth. And if you go down to verses 8 and 9 of our passage, there you would come to also see that this man not only suffered a severe handicap of blindness since birth, but he was also in a very pitiful, miserable condition to where he was resorted to begging on the streets. This man was utterly pathetic. He was in a bad situation to where it was almost impossible not to notice him, in fact. His situation must have been so disturbing to the disciples that it actually provokes them to ask Jesus a very deep question. And the reason why I say it's a very deep question is because it is a question that no one has been able to get to the bottom of. And that is the question of why do people suffer? Why do people suffer? Listen again to their question to Jesus. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples are asking Jesus, their source of wisdom, their version of why do people suffer. It is a question that wise men and sages throughout the ages could never answer, and it is still a question that modern and postmodern philosophers still scratch their heads and cannot figure out. Even to this day, this very deep, mysterious question of why do people suffer has not been adequately resolved. Just a couple years ago, Pastor Tim Keller uh, wrote a book on suffering, which is considered today amongst evangelicals one of the best books on suffering, right? And yet even in that book, Pastor Tim Keller says the following. He admits this. Can we have this quote up there, please? He says this, quote, We don't know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it is so random, end quote. We don't know. 
We still don't know. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that there haven't been attempts in trying to answer this question. History has shown that many wise men, many sages, many philosophers had tried to make their attempt in cracking this unsolvable case of figuring it out, trying to offer their answer to this elusive question. In fact, here's what's so interesting. If you carefully read the disciples' question again, there you discover that they too believe that they figured out the answer to the question. And in fact, all they're doing is asking Jesus to simply verify what they assume the answer is. Read again the question one more time. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It turns out the disciples already believe they know the answer. They know why people suffer. Why? It's because of sin. Specifically, it's because of punishment for sin. And the only thing they need Jesus to help to figure out the other part of the answer is whose sin is responsible for this man's blindness. Is it his own sin? Is it his parents' sin? Now, the fact that the disciples are thinking this way tells us that they really are a product of their culture because one of the things that was very popular during this day, one common belief that was very pervasive during this time was exactly this idea, that the only reason why people suffer is because God is punishing them for their sins or for sins, okay, that they're closely connected to. Listen to this quote from a very popular rabbi during this time, a man by the name of Rabbi Ami. Listen to what he says, quote, There is no death without sin, and there is no suffering without iniquity. This was the pervasive view that was circulating amongst ancient Jewish culture. And it turns out the disciples tended to adopt this same view. And yet, listen to what Jesus says in response, in reaction to this very prevalent belief. He says, Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What is Jesus saying here? Well, in a nutshell, he's simply saying, "Uh, you're wrong, guys. (laughs) In fact, all of Jewish society that embraces this view is absolutely wrong. Because he basically said it was neither this man's sin to why he's suffering this blindness, nor was it his parents' sin to why he is suffering his blindness. Okay? He is simply refuting the very popular notion of that time that says people suffer because a punishment for sin that they committed against God. Now, some of you who are familiar with the stories of the Bible, you may have a hard time agreeing with Jesus. Because when you read stories of Scripture, I don't know, stories like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, where God suffers, uh, uh, he lets the Sodom and Gomorrahites suffer punishment because of their blatant sin. When you read stories of how God sends his people into exile multiple times to Assyria, to Babylon twice, right? Because of their blatant sin. In other words, they're suffering because of their sins. When you read New Testament stories, like in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lying to the apostle Peter. And one of the sufferings that they endure basically is death. Clearly we see indications that, yes, in Scripture there are specific instances where people are suffering because of punishment for sin. And so you ask yourself... Why is Jesus saying what he is here? Especially when you see portions of scripture that seem to say otherwise. Here's why. And I want you to listen carefully. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us a very important principle of wisdom. And that principle of wisdom is avoiding the blindness that is caused by having an exclusive inductive faith. One more time. Jesus is trying to teach us a principle of wisdom. And that principle of wisdom says, avoid the blindness that comes as the result of having an exclusive, inductive faith. And you're like, what in the world are you talking about? What is an exclusive, inductive faith? Well, let me explain. 
there are two ways, two basic ways in which you come to understand the world. There are two ways in which you look at life that helps you understand reality. There's the inductive perspective, and then there's the deductive perspective, right? Inductive way of reasoning, deductive way of reasoning. I'm going to talk about the deductive way of reasoning in my next point, but for now, let's talk about this inductive method of perception of life. When a person thinks inductively, you know what they're doing? They're looking at specific situations, and they're looking at specific outcomes that come out of that situation, and from that, they make general conclusions. They make universal conclusions to where they assume that that situation's outcome is the same for every instance. In other words, they universalize the conclusions that come out of a specific outcome, a specific situation. So, for example, if a person thinks this way and they only think this way, right, they come to conclusions that may not be right. Now, don't get me wrong. You need to think inductively. That's part of the way God designed our minds. We need to reason inductively. We need to interpret life from an inductive standpoint. But if you only interpret life from an inductive standpoint, if that's your exclusive perception of yourself, the world, and those around you, Jesus says you are in spiritual danger. Because if you only think inductively, if you only think that way, so you read stories like Sodom and Gomorrah, you read stories of the exile, you read stories like Ananias and Sapphira, you come to conclusions that say, well, in those situations, God was punishing them for their sins, and that's why they were suffering. Therefore, all suffering, the reason why everyone suffers is because God is punishing them for their sins. You see what that does? You have a situation where a person, because of their exclusive reasoning of induction, is they take specific situations and they make universal claims of the outcome to where it's always like that, right? Or maybe a more tragic example of this that we sometimes hear about. Let's say you have a Christian and they have a loved one who's very, very sick, very sick, and they're so discouraged and so they go to scripture to get encouragement and they read the gospels and they read the story of a a person who has a loved one who is sick, maybe a daughter, maybe a son, and they go to Jesus in the gospel story, and they cry out, Lord, help me. And Jesus says something to the effect, if you only have faith of a mustard seed, then your loved one will be supernaturally healed. And so they have faith, and boom, they're supernaturally healed. And a person who has an exclusive, inductive way of looking at life, what do they conclude? Hey, if I just have enough faith, if I just believe, if I just have faith that can move a mountain, yes, then maybe my loved one too will be supernaturally healed. Let's take them out of the hospital. Let's cut off their medication because that's not faith in God, right? Let's take them out of the hospital. Let's cancel all their doctor's appointments. We're just going to pray and fast, and we're just going to wait on God to supernaturally heal because he did it in that instance in Scripture. Why won't he do it now? You see what happened? They take specific situations, and out of that specific outcome, they assume that's the norm. That's the way it's always going to be. They go from specific to universals like that, right? That's how they think. That is an inductive, exclusive faith, or an exclusive, inductive faith. And Jesus tells us that having such a mindset that leads you to that kind of a faith will lead you to blindness, absolute blindness. And we see this blindness in the way that the Pharisees reacted to Jesus healing this blind man. Turn with me to verse 13 of our passage where it reads this. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Okay, here's what's going on. Earlier on at some point, 
Jesus decides to heal this man. He takes some mud, smears it over his eyes, tells him to go wash himself at the pool of Siloam. He does so, he sees, and everyone is mesmerized. Everyone is so blown away to where they send this man to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, to have him evaluated, to give them some idea of what's going on. And what happens? What do these Pharisees conclude about Jesus in light of this situation regarding this blind man? What do they say about Jesus? He says, this man, this Jesus, he is not from God. How do they come to that conclusion? Well, it says in the verse, because he violated the Sabbath. He does not keep the Sabbath. According to some of these Pharisees, they think Jesus broke the fourth commandment. The fourth out of the ten, the one that says, thou shalt not work on the Lord's day, the Sabbath, right? Because of that, they just assume that a person from God would not violate the law of God. Here's the thing, folks. If you go through the Bible, cover to cover, you will not find anything remotely close to a command prohibiting what Jesus did. If you go through Exodus, if you go through Deuteronomy, where all the Ten Commandments are contained in, nowhere will you find the command, thou shalt not smear mud over a person's eyes and heal them on the Sabbath. You won't find anything remotely like that. But if you read the 29 prohibitions of the Sabbath in the Talmud, you will see a command that says, do not handle clay, which is basically mud. You're like, what's the Talmud? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not the Bible. You know what the Talmud is? It is a collection of all the major interpretations of Jewish rabbis to where they inductively reason the law of God and they add it to many laws of God as a way to prevent God's people from violating the actual command. You see what I'm saying? The Talmud is actually a collection of additional laws that are not in Scripture and therefore not sanctioned in Scripture, and yet it is used as a way to protect God's people from violating the actual laws by putting other laws ahead of it so it doesn't come close to actually violating that law, right? And so as a result of these fail-safe laws that eventually could lead you to violating the fourth commandment, they say if you even break those prohibitions, you are guilty in principle of violating that commandment that is trying to protect, okay? And so these people, these Pharisees, they see Jesus violating one of these general prohibitions, and they assume that as a result, in spirit, in principle, he has just broken the fourth commandment. I want to read to you uh, these words from Matthew Henry, a commentator of the Bible. Listen to what he thinks of all this. He says this, the profanation of the Sabbath day is certainly wicked and gives a man a very ill character, but the traditions of the Jews had made that to be a violation of the law of the Sabbath, which was far from being so. Their government was illegal. Their impositions were arbitrary. And their zeal for the rituals consumed the substantials of religion. And therefore, Christ would not give place to them by subjection. No, not for an hour. Christ was made under the law, but not under their law. End quote. What is he saying? He's saying that these Jewish traditions has taken a specific command, prohibiting a specific activity, work, And they twisted it and perverted it with an exclusive, inductive kind of reasoning to where they said, not only can you not work, but you can't do any activity that could lead you to work, right? Such as handling mud, such as pressing an elevator button, such as flushing a toilet, such as turning on the light on the Sabbath. You don't do that. No, 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 right? They were so consumed to where they take specific things and they make universal claims to where it covers universal activities, to where almost any activity that you do could be claimed as work and therefore a violation. And 
it's because of this exclusive inductive faith that made these men absolutely blind to who Jesus was. Isn't that kind of ironic? Here are these men, the religious leaders, the enlightened ones, those who apparently serve and know God and love God, and yet when their God, whom they're called to love and serve, the God to whose name they've been living for is standing right in front of them, instead of bowing down in worship and adoration, they say that he's a sinner. They say that he's not from God. At one point, they even go so far as to call him Satan. Wow. And friends, this is the same kind of blindness you can suffer if you understand your life and therefore your faith from an exclusive inductive mindset, especially when it comes to suffering. If you only tend to look at life from purely an inductive standpoint, that means that when you go through suffering, the only thing that you can come to as a logical conclusion, because you're so stuck in that exclusive way of thinking, is that you're going to think, God, when I suffer, that must mean you're against me. I must have done something wrong. Or you must not be a good God. Or you must be a God that just hates me and despises me. Or if someone you know is suffering, right, you just keep some distance, don't you? Because you think in the back of your head, you may not say, oh, maybe this person is getting what's coming to them, right? What goes around comes around. Karma, right? And as a result, instead of showing compassion, instead of showing empathy, there's judgment. There's scorn. There is danger when you look at your life and therefore look into your faith from an exclusive inductive mindset to where you misinterpret yourself, you misinterpret Jesus, you misinterpret those around you. And so the question is, how do we avoid that kind of mistake? How do we avoid that kind of blindness? That leads me to my next and final point, people who do see the light. Let's take a closer look at the actual person who is enlightened, the one who does see the light, starting in verse 24. It reads, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Excuse me. We know that this man is a sinner, this man being Jesus. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The first thing I want to draw your attention to in those verses is how different this man is thinks of Jesus to how the Pharisees see Jesus. What do the Pharisees say in those verses about Jesus? What do they say about him? He's like, we know he is a sinner. What does he say in response? Uh, I don't know if he's a sinner, which basically means I don't know if I agree with you guys. I don't know if you're right. Now, simply from that response alone should tell us that this man has a very different perspective than the Pharisees. He does not have an exclusive inductive mindset, and therefore he does not have an exclusive inductive faith. Here's the question. What kind of mindset, what kind of faith does he have? Well, let's have our passage back up again, and let's zero in on verses 26 to 33, okay? Notice how this blind man, how he evaluates Jesus in verse 31. How does he evaluate Jesus? Does he first look at himself? Does he look at the specific healing that Jesus did for him in order to evaluate whether or not Jesus is who he says to be, right? Does he look at himself? Does he look at his specific situation? Does he look at his specific problems or circumstances? No. What does he do in verse 31? What does he start with? He starts with God, right? He starts with what is always true about God, what has always been true about God, what is universally true about God, what has always been true of God since the beginning of time. Listen again to what he says starting in verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What is he saying? He's saying there's never been a situation. There's never been a specific situation or a specific moment or a specific circumstance where a person who claims to do things in the name of God were able to actually do it unless God sent that person. How is he arguing? He's arguing from a universal standpoint. He's talking about what's always been true. Ever since the beginning of time, never there ever been a moment, right, where Jesus did what someone else did or what someone else was able to do what Jesus did, right? Never. It's always been the case. It's always been like this. He's starting from what has always been true universally that has never been changing. And from that, he decides how he's going to evaluate Jesus. What is he doing? He is deducing, is he not? He is showing that he's thinking from a deductive standpoint. This man has a deductive faith. What is a deductive faith? Well, it's the exact opposite of an inductive faith, right? If a person thinks inductively by going from specifics and from that making general universal conclusions, a deductive person thinks the exact opposite. They start from the universals, what's always been true, and from that, they interpret their specific situations, right? They look at what has always been the case, what has always been the norm, and from that, they then come to understand their specific problems, their specific situations, their specific issues, and that's what this man did. He looked at what has God's been modus operandi, what has always been the case, and from that he evaluates Christ. And what conclusion does he come to when it comes to Christ? Starting in verse 35, it reads, Jesus heard that they had cast him, the former blind man, out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you now. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What's the takeaway? Here's the takeaway, Christian. You need to make sure that when you interpret what's happening in your specific life, especially in your times of sufferings, that you always approach it with a deductive mindset, with a deductive faith. One more time. When you interpret what is happening in your specific life, especially when it comes to your sufferings, make sure that you start from a deductive state of mind, with a deductive faith. You need to start what is always true, specifically what is always true of God, in order to understand your specific, particular situation and moment in life. But some of you are like, well, Pastor John, what does that mean, though? The Bible gives us many universal truths that are always true about God, right? Which one do we pick? Do we pick what this guy picked? Right, that God only uses those whom he says? I mean, what, what, what other universal truths should we pick? There's so many in Scripture. Well, Jesus actually tells us the one universal truth about God that we need to focus on and only focus on. He says it in verse 5 when he says what? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. You know, whenever Jesus says that he is light, he's basically saying, I am truth. Light and truth are synonymous in the gospel of John. So when he says, I am light, he is saying, I am truth. Everything that I am represents what is true of God, okay? But notice, he doesn't say, I am a light of truth. What does he say? I am the light. I am the light of the world, right? I am not simply a component of what has always been true about God. I'm not simply an aspect of what has always been true about God. I'm not simply a version of what has always been true about God. I am the full encapsulation. I am the fullness of everything that is true about God. Everything that's always been true about God and will always be true about God all focuses on me. 
Which means when you want to understand your specific life, when you want to understand your specific situations, when you want to understand what you're going through when you are suffering, the thing that you need to focus on about God that's always true is who Jesus is and what he has done. That is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is the final revelation of God. He is the full revelation of God. Consider these words from Hebrews chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance and through the son he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than the names. He's saying God spoke in the past through prophets to where the prophets spoke truth about God. God spoke in the past through angels where they were messengers telling truth about God. And yet this author says Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets, which means he is the fullness of God's truth. So putting all this together, what does it mean? It means when it comes to understanding our specific situations in life, especially when we suffer, we need to start with what is true about Jesus. Always. The universal truth that is Jesus. Here's the question. What is this universal truth of Christ? What is this thing that helps us understand our specific issues, our specific problems, our specific sufferings? I'm going to read to you a long quote. Sorry, it's long, but it's so good. John Stott. Listen to what he says. I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I had to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, torture figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorns, pricks, mouth dry and intolerable, thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our suffering becomes more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou What is Stott saying here? He's talking about the gospel, right? The good news that God became man, Jesus Christ. And he suffered tremendously all throughout that culminated in his bloody death on the cross. Why? So that if you repent of your sins, make Jesus your Lord to where you have faith in him. You have faith that he took on the punishment for human sin. To where if you make him Lord, if you make him the center of your life, if you make him the meaning of your existence, the punishment you deserve for your sins gets added to the punishment that he fully paid for on the cross. So that yes, you get forgiveness of sins. Yes, you get eternal life. But you know what else you get? 
you get the universal truth that is always going to be true and always true no matter what circumstances, no matter what situation you face. And that is what? God loves you. God is always for you. God is always with you. God loves you. That is the universal truth of Jesus that you need to keep in mind every time you try to decipher and understand and interpret your specific life. That is the gospel. That's how you should always be interpreting your specific situations because, friends, if you don't, if you only look at it from an inductive standpoint to where you always start with your specific situations and from that you interpret who God is, rather than starting with who God is and therefore interpret your situations, you're going to end up with a God who you think is not for you. You're going to think a God is going to be punishing you through your sufferings. You're going to think of a God that may be like the way the Pharisees saw Jesus. God you're the devil. You're not God. Don't do that. Do not have an exclusive inductive faith. Start with what is universally true. Have a deductive faith. Start with what you know that the cross teaches us. That because of who Jesus is and what he has done, even in the midst of your suffering, nowhere will you ever come close to the conclusion that your God is not for you that your God does not love you, and that your God is not with you. If you want to have a clear articulation of this from the Bible, consider these words from the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8. Can we have it up? What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up all for us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victories are through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor fears for today, nor worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul takes all that is always true about God, exemplified through Jesus. And he filters that through with all the sufferings, all the setbacks, all the tragedies that were in his life. And what does he conclude? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Earlier in my message, I recited, quoted Tim Keller, but I didn't give you the full quote, so I'm going to end With one last quote, it's long, I'm sorry, but it's so good. Listen to what he says. We do not know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it's so random, but now at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that he doesn't care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. He understands us. He has been there, and he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear Someone might say, but that's only half an answer to the question why. Yes, but it's the half that we need. 
That sounds like a man with a deductive faith. That sounds like a man who sees the light. My question to you, NCF, have you seen the light? Have you operated with a deductive faith? Or have you blinded yourself with such a locked-in, exclusive, narrow-mindedness of just having an inductive way of looking at life? My hope to you, let's do some deducing, less induction, and let's see the light, and let's see the love of our great God together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us to see the light that you've came to show forth most preeminently through who you are, what you've done, and even what you continue to do as our great high priest. Father, we love you because we know you love your son, and you gave this most precious beloved son of yours to wretched sinners like us so that we would be wretched no more, but that you would look upon us and that you would see him and that we would see ourselves no longer estranged from you, no longer aliens, but instead we would see ourselves as your beloved, that we would have the same level of status and love and blessings that you have given to your son even from eternity past. Father, we ask now that you would help us become wise people, enlighten us, help us to see the light and free us from the foolishness and folly of an exclusive inductive mindset that leads to an exclusive inductive faith that could lead us to no faith at all. Father, help us to deduce who you are as we fixate our hearts and minds always on what is always true through Jesus in the gospel. For we pray all these things in his precious name. Amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offerings for visiting us. We don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give God his tithes and our offerings.